you'd turn in your Bibles. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll finish chapter 2 in a message I've entitled, The Word at Work. As we've gone through chapter 2, you may remember that we had two studies which listed the characteristics of greatness, the characteristics of Christ, those things which mark believers as people who are God's people. We then transitioned into a a time of understanding that it was the, the word that was the focus in our lives, and as we live out that word, that ultimately that word should work out of us. In other words, what we receive, we should then use for his glory. And it is there that we come as we look at verse 14, for it says, You brethren became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. And so these churches had been planted by the Apostle Paul. They had been given the characteristic of Christ. In other words, they were starting to look like, act like, talk like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to call them to imitate what they've heard. Too often the church becomes something other than what Scripture describes as the church. We get involved in all kinds of programs. We, We do great social things. And while those things are wonderful, the net desire, the plan that we have, is to take the gospel into all the world so that all men might be saved. It's not to just promote social things. It isn't to take care of programs Uh, that caused the church to grow. It's to cause the body of Christ, that beautiful picture in Ephesians 4, that there is one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one God, and one Lord who is Lord over all. We want people to come to faith in Christ. And in order for that to happen, we have to take the word that we have received out into the world. Because our job is to go, the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, is to go ye therefore into all of the world and make disciples of all men. The first step of which is bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel must be first. It has to be that which is in view for us as the church And so would you join me now as we finish up chapter 2 and we'll pray and ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father, we again are so grateful for the power of your word to transform and change us. And we pray now as we study it that you would take and bless our hearts and our minds and even our our actions, Lord, as we try and live out uh, the good news that you've given us. Lord, the wonderful news that is ours that you, Jesus, came to this earth, died for us, died in our place, that we might have eternal life. And so, Lord, bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so he describes them in verse 14 as being in Christ Jesus. That means to be a believer. That means to be saved. That means to have the gospel in view. And it goes on in the second half of verse 14. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as did the Judeans. So writing to the church at Thessalonica, here's what's going to happen. When you start to live out the gospel, when you take the word and you do work with it, people are going to hate you. They're not going to like what you have to say. As I was watching the the inauguration, and not to say anything political, but to speak to this very issue, 
The complaints that came through on Twitter and all those kind of things were that people, for the first time in a long time, Franklin Graham prayed in Jesus' name. Amen? You see, everybody was okay while they were talking about God. And everyone was okay while we're talking about something that could be Allah or it could be Muhammad. It could be almost anybody. As long as you don't mention the name above all names, Jesus, everybody's okay. But the moment you say that there is only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, is the moment you say that there is one way and one truth and one life, and it is only in Jesus' name that one can come to faith in Christ, you, you join that exclusive word to what you're saying, and all of a sudden, the world goes nuts. You can talk about God all day long to anyone, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. But you mention the name Jesus and people are going to hate you and persecute you. They'll call you all manner of things falsely for his name's sake. Just exactly as Jesus said. And so he goes on in verse 15, notice this, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, for they're contrary to all men. And of course, he's describing the Jewish people. And again, remember, God has a plan for for national Israel. One day, the Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. There is going to come a time when, when the good news of the gospel is going to go on in the mind of the Jewish people. But Jesus himself said that blindness in part has come upon the nation Israel until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so in that sense... Though Messiah, Jesus, came and visited his people, he was not received. And what happens when you don't receive the message is you harden your heart towards the messenger, Jesus. And now all of a sudden, those who should have had the best idea of who Messiah was, who Jesus actually was, the Jewish people, were the ones that were hating on him. And in fact, it was Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. And his minions who concocted the plan to actually have Jesus put to death. And furthermore, if there's a job you didn't want in the Old Testament, that was a job of prophet of the Lord God Most High. Amen? It usually got you killed. And so those who have come with the message throughout time have been persecuted. It is the good news of the gospel that people are really offended by. It's a stumbling block. And so this passage tells us how important it is that we take the Word and get working with it because it is the Word that saves, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say in verse 16, let's finish this up, for forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. You see it? You see the goal is to be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And therefore, we wanted to come to you, but even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Do not underestimate the desire for Satan himself to hinder the plans of God. We have a real enemy. He's not the dude with the forked ears and the horns and a tail. He comes as an angel of light. 
He is a deceiver, and he hates everything about the plan of salvation, and he is about hindering the work of God. There is a real hindrance to the work, and we'll look at this in a moment. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? It's a question. And then he answers it. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Do you see what he's saying? I was listening on the way in, and he, he repeats, uh, really kind of restates the same thing a different way, for you are our glory and our joy. I was listening on the way in this morning as I was driving in, you know, it's raining and the windshield wipers are going, but it seems like people are panicking right now in our country. And it's like, you know, the sky is falling and the world's going to cave in and we're going to be sucked into some kind of black hole. Uh, and And so I'm hearing all these things, it's like, you need to convert all of your liquid assets into gold. You know, make sure you have gold because it's the only thing that's going to stand up in times of trouble. When you get to heaven, you can't take it with you. Amen? I, I love that joke. The angel's sitting there talking to the guy. He comes down and says, you can, have, you can have one wish. You can take one thing with you to heaven. Think about it. Pray about it. So the guy goes away and he starts collecting stuff, comes back. The angel asks him, he says, can you open up the bag? I want to see what you're taking to heaven. He opens it up and he, there, there's gold bars in there. He says, why do you take that to heaven? We use that as pavement. <laughs> That's kind of the way the world functions right now. What is your crown? What is your hope? What is your joy? What are you working towards while you're here as a believer? Let me tell you what it is. Give you the short answer. It's other believers. It's people. That's the only thing you can take to heaven with you is other people who have come to faith in Christ. So the word is supposed to be at work in our world, the gospel going forward so people can be saved. That's the power of God's word. It's divine. It's supernatural. You see, it is, it is the gospel of God unto salvation to them who believe. God's given us this pattern, this plan. And so let's look at this pattern that we're supposed to imitate. And it uses the word there in verse 14, being imitators of the church, the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ. And the reason he could say that is they were living gospel lives. They were sharing the word of God with people as they would meet them. There was a, there was a sense that as they lived out their lives in the world, that the Bible was being made alive through the way they lived. And so to that, Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, remember where it is, it's a heathen city, it's a wealthy city, it's a city that largely wants to have nothing to do with God, and he says, we, we need you to live out your faith. You need to imitate these churches that have been prospering even though they're in a hostile environment. And family, we need to think of ourselves that same way. We need to imitate this gospel that's been preached since Jesus was first here. You see, a lot of times, it's amazing how many things I get in the mail each week. Different ministries, different opportunities. We, we get dozens of people that want to come and share their new thing. And, and, and I get stuff that's like, you know, like clowns for Christ. I, serious is a heart attack. Clowns for Christ. They want to come and, you know, and, and again, I'm, I personally happen to think that clowns are creepy, but 
They kind of scare me, actually. But it, it, it is, it, you, you, there's all these things that the church is entertaining. Well, why don't we do Clowns for Christ? Or why don't we have a holy rodeo or holy yoga? Or why don't we do all these things? Look, here's the only thing that we've actually been called to do is the body of Christ once we get saved. In a general sense, we're supposed to preach the gospel. So everything we do, feeding homeless people, preach the gospel. Ministering to, to those far and wide, preach the gospel. When we come here, we want to preach the gospel. If you're in junior high or high school, we want to preach the gospel. Our goal is to see people come to faith in Christ. It's not to just simply put forth some programs. So the model we follow is the gospel model. We imitate that pattern. It's a very decisive pattern. It's one that's old in that sense. The disciples were following that pattern, and we follow that same pattern. It's Christ and his word. And we can learn to follow that godly example by simply looking and seeing uh, what the real church is doing throughout the world. It's amazing how many ways there are to share the gospel. And so that's what we want to do. Look, it's a fact that some of your most bitter enemies are going to be your neighbors, they're going to be your friends, they're going to be your family at times, because the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. But to them who are being saved, it's the gospel of God unto salvation, amen? So when you speak the gospel, you're going to make some enemies. We have to just keep doing what's been done for a long time. And that's to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of the personal attacks, in spite of the intimidation, in spite of the stuff that's going to be said against you. We need to preach the gospel. Because that will save men's, women's, people, mankind's souls. And it's the only way for people to come to faith. There is no other name. It gives us some things not to do. Who not to imitate? We need to imitate that first century church, which was busy about the gospel business. But there was a group of people, when you think about it, that were, they should have had the clearest understanding. That would have been the Jewish people. For 1,500 years, God had been dealing with them, giving them special revelation. They had at the time the Torah. They would have had the books of Moses at least. Undoubtedly, some of the books of the law and the prophets. And now because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that they had at least the Old Testament in written form. So they understood the prophetic passages. They knew Messiah would come. Without question, they would have been able to understand that there was one God who existed in three persons. And they were waiting for the third person. They understood the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for Messiah. But what did they do? They became religious. And furthermore, they became legalists. They, they started to think that because they had a special relationship, because God had graced them with some special knowledge, that they were so special that everybody else couldn't be like them. And so it was the Jews in Judea that actually killed the Lord. Because that new covenant was an offense. It's like, well, what do we do with the law? What do we do with the prophets? They didn't even have it properly in view what they themselves had done to their own prophets. 
Very often it was the Jewish people who killed their own prophets. They got tired of hearing the message. It's like, don't speak to us anymore about these things. Glad we get to heaven. Poor Isaiah is going to be put back together. Swan in two. And so we see five things. Look, you don't want to be like those who try and kill off Jesus. Can I tell you that every religion on the face of the earth tries to kill off Jesus? They don't try and kill off God. They try and kill off Jesus. Get rid of Jesus. Take Jesus out of the picture. We're good with it. Jesus is the main thing. And we need to keep Jesus front and center in all that we do. Secondly, those who spoke for the Lord, the prophets, those who foretold of Jesus' first coming, those who foretold of his second coming, those who spoke for God, those people were also bumped off. So guess what happens when you start sharing Jesus' name? People are going to despise you. They're going to hate you. A third thing, Christians throughout Judea were being persecuted. Look, when you go to work and you flip your Bible open on your desk and you read it on your lunch break, somebody's going to come walking by and they're going to go, oh, one of those. Don't tell me you actually believe what's in there. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to say mean things against you spitefully. The crazy thing was, the fourth thing, in all of their incredible knowledge, the Jewish people had lost sight of Messiah. They missed him when he came. And the legalism got in the way. And so they were actually unacceptable to God. They thought that in the law and the prophets, they actually had salvation. But all the law can do is tell you how far you missed the mark. That's why the Apostle Paul would write that the Law is a tutor, it's a schoolmaster unto Christ. It just simply says, yep, I missed it. So that you can lean on the grace of God. And then finally, we find that these religious legalists were contrary to all men. They couldn't get along with anybody. Very small group. Now here's the difference in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because he desires all men to be saved, everybody can. The message is exclusive, but what God wants to do is very inclusive. He wants everyone to be saved. So don't miss that part. Yes, it's only at the name of Jesus, but that's available to everyone. Every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. The way of grace is the same for all of us. What happened there was the legalists were really full of themselves. There was no room for the work of God. There was no room for the Spirit to work. In essence, they were graceless. God's unmerited favor has been poured out upon us. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he, he, he didn't say it is finished for really special people. He said it's finished, period. It's done. And so the result of that is that all men can be saved. And so there's no reason for us to be filled up with ourselves because none of us are special in that regard. We all come to faith the same way. 
We all have to have the same grace. And what they were doing was actually forbidding people. They were hindering people. They were restraining people from coming to to grace. That's what religion does. That's what legalism does. That's why if you ever have the opportunity to talk to, say, a Jehovah's Witness, religion pushes people away and starts special clubs that only the people who understand these things can belong to. And yet grace says, to as many as will receive him, to them he gave the ability to be the sons and daughters of God. Amen? It's inclusive. Legalism and religion pushes people out because you don't meet the standards and criteria. God's grace brings people in. It's a free gift. You see, to oppose the word of God is to oppose the grace of God. Because your Bible is a story of the grace of God. You can't see the grace of God in Adam and Eve. Read the story again. If you can't see the grace of God in Noah, read the story again. If you can't see the grace of God in Abraham's life, read the story again. The word of God is the story of the grace of God, even in the Old Testament. That thread of redemption that is woven through there. Who took care of Adam and Eve's sin? It wasn't them. It was God. It was a free gift. I've got to take care of you. You need to be covered. I'm killing this animal, and I'm going to clothe you with the skins. Someone innocent's going to die to take care of your sin. That's the grace of God. In Abraham's life, what's he doing? He's wandering around in the promised land lying, deceiving, not trusting God. What does God do? He keeps his promise anyway and makes him the father of many nations. Makes his descendants as plentiful as the sands of the sea. That's the grace of God. You see, the word of God is the story of the grace of God. And the word in our lives, the word at work, is also very relational. Look at verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, at least in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. You see, what I see in this passage is these were people who were so invested in each other's lives, they were inseparable. I always question the faith of people, and it's not my job to do that, but you have to wonder when people say, well, you know, I don't really believe in church. I don't really believe in a public faith. I don't really believe in having, you know, my faith visible. Sometimes I wonder if that's what we would call genuine faith. Because if you have genuine faith, you're going to understand you need other believers in this world. We have been made relational by God. And Paul is in in emotional agony over the fact he cannot go see his friends in Thessalonica. And so I say this to you. Separation should be for a short time. But you should never put out of sight in your mind those people who have been engaged in your life as fellow believers. They become dear to you. You're constantly worried about what's going on in the lives of those people that you know who love the Lord. You've invested in their life and they in your life. In other words, the body of Christ should not be filled with Christians who find it okay to be out of fellowship. Going and doing their own thing. We've been made relational by God. 
And it tore Paul apart to be away from his friends. It should tear us apart. We we should be concerned when we lose friends. It should bother us. When the word is at work in you, the enemy is going to hate you. The enemy is going to hate you. And notice what it says, And therefore, because he was relational, because the word was at work in his life, and he wanted to see those people with whom he had camaraderie, those people he had invested in, he wanted to see the believers at Thessalonica. Because of that, look what happened. And therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered me, hindered us. And he's going to hinder you as well. That word there, hindered, is a very interesting word. But I think it's important for you to realize that Satan is a real enemy. And the word that's used here means to cut in. It means for someone to see two people together, and you've probably had this. Maybe you're having a conversation with somebody And there's that one rude person who just refuses to stay out of every conversation and almost comes right between the two of you and gets in the middle of it. Or maybe you remember those high school dances where there was that one guy in the whole school that could actually dance. And he would just go around and and dance with everyone. And he would cut in. Satan's like that. He cuts in. He drives a wedge. He wants to hinder whatever is going on in your life between you and Jesus and you and other people who love Jesus. Satan tries to cut in. He tries to butt in. He tries to get in the middle. He tries to drive wedges between you and your Christian friends. He tries to plant bitterness and anger and hatred and vanity and all of those works of the flesh. He tries to drive those right into your relationship because he wants to hinder you. Because he knows this, when believers get together, we edify and build one another up. And so if he can keep us apart, then he's done his job because now we're alone with him or maybe with our own thoughts, our own mind. And so Satan tries to hinder you. That is the reason, by the way, that Ephesians chapter 6 has the armor of God. That would be a meaningless statement if there were not a real enemy who actually wants to use his wiles against you. And his chief wiles is as a liar and a deceiver by getting in between you and God and you and other people who love the Lord. I can't tell you how many churches have been torn apart by personal disagreements between two people. Entire churches splitting. One side or the other. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos. I'm for this guy, that guy, this woman, that woman. That's the enemy. You see, that helmet of salvation protects your mind. That breastplate of righteousness protects your heart. Your your feet shod with the gospel of peace keep you stable in an unstable world. That sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, enables you to slash back at the end. When he's trying to cut you up, you cut him up with it. That's what Jesus did, amen? Amen. You say, thus says the Lord, man shall not live. Didn't Jesus say that? Turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus himself used the word. 
And yet we get separated from other people. We get separated from the Word and we wander around and we wonder why Satan is able to beat on us. Satan hates you. He is your enemy. It's why you need that shield of faith. There's sometimes you just got to duck and cover. Amen? Amen. I do. It's like, man, I'm getting pounded. I'm just going to take out the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Amen? He's a real enemy. He really hates you. He's trying to hinder God's work in your life. You have to have that reality. If the word is going to work out of you, you have to protect yourself. Be armored up. The good news is here in 2 Timothy is Satan can't bind the word of God. Satan has no power to hinder the work of God because it is God's voice. The word of God is sufficient to cause the devil to flee. Did you know that? It's what Jesus did, didn't he? Each time he's tempted in his flesh, he's tempted in his spirit, he's tempted in his emotions, and he responds with the word every time. And finally Satan departs. He says, I can't get to Jesus, he's using the word against me. So use the word effectively against your enemy. You have to know the word for that to happen. There in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 10, it says, Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Even though the apostle Paul himself was chained, the word of God was not. So no matter what's binding you, the word of God is able no matter how in, the enemy is trying to get into your life, the word of God is able to protect you from his attacks. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He has limited resources. But your God is all-powerful and able to deliver you. And so you rest and trust in him. That, that is the only way, the only way that James' admonition in James chapter 1 makes a bit of sense To count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, the only way that makes sense is that as a child of God, you have the power of God to withstand those temptations. Because if you're hopeless and helpless, that is a foolish statement. If Satan can just have his way with you whenever he feels like it, then that makes no sense at all for God to encourage us through the words of James, through the written word, that we should count it all joy. In other words, it means that God has a purpose in the things that he allows in your life, including the times when he tries to hinder you. But greater is he who's in you, amen, than he who's in this world. And so you stand. Don't concede defeat. Paul didn't. If there's an obstruction of something between you and a loved one in Christ, if there's something between you and God, then get around it by the word. Go a different direction. Allow God to help you with that issue. And then finally, as we wrap this up today, the reward of the word at work. You see, if the word is going to work out of us, if that gospel is going to go forth, if we're going to be Bible people, here's the good news. There's a reward for that. And so he gives us that picture here in verses 19 and 20. 
You see, sometimes we think that all of this is for here, and it's not. He, he simply says that these things which we do, the way that we live our lives right now, for what is our hope or our joy, our crown of rejoicing, is it not even you? And who's he talking about? He's talking about the Thessalonian believers, the church that he had planted, the people he had shared the gospel with. The crown of rejoicing for the Apostle Paul was the people that he led to Christ. Can you imagine when you're there in heaven? Because when we get there, we're going to be known as we are known here. We're actually going to know each other. You're going to look and go, Joe, how are, how are you doing, man? So great to see you. Dennis. Man, isn't it awesome? We're in the presence of the Lord. And then all the people that you have shared Christ with throughout your life, as you bump into them in the glories of heaven, that is your real crown. Because it's eternal. It's an eternal investment. It's not like that, you know, store up gold in your basement of your house just in case the world's monetary markets crash. And by the way, if you have some, great. Praise the Lord. But you can't take that with you. It's not real treasure. It's earthly treasure. And that's why Jesus said, don't store up your treasure here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but store up your treasure in heaven. What's your treasure in heaven? It's people. You invest in people's lives. You share the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That gospel, that power of God unto salvation is what we're to be concerned with as a church. As we work the word out of us, it leads to other people coming to faith in Christ. And because of that, the population of heaven grows. Can I remind you of something? Whatever heaven is, which we don't know the full glories of heaven, but whatever it is, it can contain everyone who will ever be saved. You don't have to worry about, I had a guy, well, you know, heaven's going to get too crowded. He actually said that to me. I'm like, dude, you're probably one of the ones that shouldn't be there. (laughs) You think about it. We want heaven to be packed with people. Every last person who's on the face of the earth, we want to come to faith in Christ. So that word works out of us now. And the Lord works through us for his glory and for his own namesake, for his own kingdom. It's what makes life worthwhile at the end. Try and think about anything that you can do on this earth that is actually long-lasting. You know, we buy houses, we take out 30-year mortgages, and then about 10 years in, the thing starts falling apart, right? You've got hundreds of thousands of dollars wrapped up. Your, your whole life's existence going to work is making this mortgage payment on something that's going to eventually turn to dust, Cars, the same thing. You get in there the first couple of months, you're like, ah, new car smell. Then it's kids' old burrito smell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, you, you go in and you go to a department store and you buy that, you know, you, you're the first one that owns that jacket or owns that gown. And you're like, yeah, I look good. And then you see it on the sale rack at Ross. You're like, 
You're all jacked up about the thing. You know, it's just, you're like, man, nothing in this world is ever worth what you pay for it if it stays here. Nothing is. But there's one thing that you can do that has an eternal investment, and that's share the gospel. And when somebody gets saved, that is an eternal investment in your account and will be a crown for your glory. Praise the Lord, because that gives us meaning, lasting joy, everlasting joy. As the Lord uses you for His eternal purposes, we have the reward of that Word in us, working out of us for the glory of our King. And to some degree, if there is such a thing, your heavenly reputation is going to hang on how many people you bring with you. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? He's going to have like his own part of heaven. You know, maybe Peter. Can you imagine those 3,000 that Peter preached to in Acts chapter 2 that got saved? And then those people went and preached to other people? How many hundreds of thousands or millions of people will be in heaven because of the legacy of the Apostles? Millions of people. Let's give them a little competition. Amen? Amen. Let's let the word be at work out of us. Because here's the good news. We get everybody saved, we can go home. Amen? Think about it. Everybody's saved. I mean, it's time to go. Would you stand and let's pray. Now, I want to... Also, at the same time, maybe you're here and you're visiting today. So we certainly had first service. The gospel was just spoken to you. Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to this earth. He died on Calvary's cross to provide a way for you to be saved. He paid the penalty of your sin so that you could have his righteousness the grace that God gives you to go to heaven. And maybe you came today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never invited him into your life. Uh, And before we pray to close the service, I simply want to ask if there's anyone here today, if you would all bow your heads and close your eyes and just allow a moment for people to sort through some things between them and God. If you're here today and you do not know the Jesus that I was just speaking about, but you want to know him. You want Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. If you would just raise your hand right where you're standing. We're going to pray together where you are. Just slip your hand up in the air, and I want to, I want to pray for you, pray with you. I see those hands. Praise the Lord. I see that hand as well. There's hands up all over the sanctuary. I see that hand in the back. I see that other hand in the back. I see that other hand in the back. See this hand here? Yes. Hands up all over the sanctuary. Believers, please be praying. If you don't know Jesus, but you want to know him, he, he loves you and he died for you. Just keep your hands up for just a moment longer. Anyone else? Anyone else? For those that have raised your hands, there, there literally are hands up in every section of the sanctuary today. 
Those who have raised your hands, you can put your hands down and I'm just simply going to lead you in a prayer. And would you just pray after me? You must believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Would you just pray these words after me? Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I know I need a savior. And I want to thank you for dying for me. I want to thank you for forgiving my sin. And I pray right now that you would write my name in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. And Lord, I promise to walk with you all of my days. And I accept you as my Savior and my Lord right now. Would you help me in my new journey with you? Would you help me to know your word and to walk with you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.